0: your life with this episode of Lifestyle and Success with Dr. S. Hey friends, Dr. S here. You know, one thing that I love about this show is that it shows anyone and everyone that regardless of what background you have, what different experiences you have had, and who you are, that you can obtain your level of success. I've been getting some really positive feedback from the business tips that you've been getting and the lifestyle hacks that I've been loving. And so I have to tell you, if you are feeling this community to subscribe to the talk show and never miss a beat, head to lifestyleandsuccesswithdrs.com. And today's guest is coming up. So, I don't know if you are a Julia Childs fan, but I have to say I am. I know, totally weird, but it just has been a thing. Um, And every time I'm in France, I always think of her making her dishes, and I have this romanticized view of being in this beautiful kitchen and creating a cookbook and all the things, guys. I go there all the way. Today's guest is literally the embodiment of that. Serena is a New Yorker and she has written several cookbooks and she's a very popular chef cookbook author, food blogger. She's also studied in France and gotten all her culinary skills completely up to par and over the bar. And she's going to talk to us today about how to publish your first cookbook. I don't know if this is something that I would do. I think in my head, I just enjoy cooking and don't plan on doing it professionally, but I love talking about it. And so if you are a foodie and if you love to bake or love to cook or just love talking about all things food, I think you're going to enjoy today's episode with Serena Wolf she's gonna go through her business with us and just share her story and so Serena I'm really happy to have you welcome to the show
1: thank you for having me I'm so excited
0: So excited to have you so how did you get started with your work
1: so I, when I graduated from college, it was 2009, height of the recession. I truly had no idea what I really want to do, which was mildly panic-inducing, especially during that time period. Um, but I ended up very much, it's a much, much, much longer story, but somewhat on a whim deciding to go to culinary school um I had minored in French I had always wanted to live in Paris uh I Figured if I was going to go to culinary school, I really wanted to do it. And I wanted to study at Le Cordon Bleu Paris, but I really thought that I would only be there for a few months and do their basic program and then come home and figure out what I was going to do next. It was sort of meant to be a brief interlude and ended up becoming my whole life in the best possible way. Um, but I arrived there and I, ironically, um, I had no background in food. Nobody in my family really cooks. It's still very comical to my (laughs) friends and family that this is the career that I ended up in. Um, But when I arrived, I really didn't know how to cook anything. And it was truly trial by fire. It sounds very cliche, and I wish I could explain it better, but I really fell in love with cooking while I was at Cordon Bleu, and there were most, you know, most of the people there had always dreamed of becoming a chef. They were changing careers. They were already working in the restaurant industry, Um, so I was very overwhelmed because I had zero experience, and I really thought I would be sort of roasting chickens and drinking wine, a la Julia and Julia, (laughs) (laughs) Anybody that has been to Culinary School knows that your experience there is quite the opposite of that. It is very intense, it's very rigorous. Uh, but I think as somebody who has always been very type A and has always really loved school, I just kind of threw myself into it. And I found myself a few months in doing these practical kitchen lessons where I would be executing the recipes that we had learned in previous demonstration classes. And I felt really calm and focused and just loved the process of creating these beautiful meals. And I ended up signing on to do the full diploma program and never looked back. But I did I did the cuisine program, to be clear. I also did one term of pastry, which is a completely different skill set and I was deeply <laughs> terrible at. And I think it's very important to be able to acknowledge one's strengths, but also yeah. be very aware of their weaknesses. And yes. I don't think that you have to be amazing at both things. I think it's really beautiful to see people who are passionate about sort of... Just straight up cooking versus baking and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So you know, I have to ask you. I mean, we yes. talked a lot
0: about we talk a lot about France on this show. Just and and not because it has any like real connection to the show itself, but that was where I was inspired to start. She heals the world on a trip to Paris, you know, almost ten years ago, and it's just been a place that I've fallen in love with. What was that like? Transition like for you studying there and and kind of getting settled there for a little while?
1: It was incredible and also deeply terrifying on <laughs> many levels because, as I said, I minored in French. I truly thought that I was very good at speaking French, only to arrive and realize that I did not, in fact, speak French French at all. Basically, <laughs> um, I spoke French like a grandmother. My professors had always spoken significantly more slowly than Parisians do uh, and without a Parisian accent. And I had really moved over there. I channel this energy a lot or I at least have been trying to in my career because I, for whatever reason, I think at that stage in my life, I was very fearless and I think I've actually developed more fears as I've gotten older uh, than I had at that time because a lot of people asked me when I left for Paris, they're like, Oh, so do you have French over there? Do you speak French? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then they were like, do you have friends over there? And I was like, no. And they're like, do you know the city at all? And I was like, No, <laughs> And I, the more questions they would ask, the more I was like, should I be concerned about this? <laughs> um, and I arrived a little bit, a while before school started with the intention of familiarizing myself with the city and doing a bit of travel. And I really didn't have any context for meeting people. So I ended up exploring the city on my own and eating a ton of meals alone and walking and going to museums and seeing music and doing all these things by myself, which is not something that I did a lot of. And I think that Europeans embrace that sort of solitude and celebrate it in a way that Americans haven't traditionally done Mm. just in my experience. And so while it was really scary and a little bit lonely at first, I came to really appreciate that independence. And I felt really proud of myself for taking that leap and really doing it on my own. And uh, as with all things, there were a lot of highs and lows to the experience, but I I really, for that reason, Paris will always feel incredibly special to me because it was sort of something to conquer in a way on my own for the first time in a way that I hadn't had to do previously in my life, you know, because I just felt that I had always been not remotely coddled, but through high school and college, you know, you always have friends and family around and things like that. And this was the one time in my life that I had truly been on my own, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Same. I think for me, it was like my first biggest international trip to a place where like yes. you, I knew no <laughs> one. <laughs> I, 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 I have family in it because I did do the London thing first in England and I have family over there. So I felt more comfortable, even though it was like a big shift for me traveling there. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, I have no connections in this place. And And France has an interesting way of like welcoming you, even when you don't, you're not really sure if you quite belong. Um, so that that we definitely share. What an incredible story. I think we'll we'll touch back on that sometime in the yes. show because I, I want to hear some more. But what hurdles did you overcome did you overcome personally when you thought about like, okay, I want to be a chef. I need to kind of support myself with this title in this space, but I don't want to do it traditionally, but I also need to make like more than traditional money doing it. <laughs> so yes. What, were there as you were like really building and creating this personal
1: brand for yourself. Like first of all, how much time do we have? <laughs> I mean, I think that my whole story, my whole career journey, quote unquote, to this point has truly been an exercise in perseverance because I think the one One thing that I've had to adjust to is just hearing no constantly. And also, because I have worked for myself and chosen to go in a non traditional direction, a lot of people don't really understand what I do, why I do it, or believe in. Or over the years, there have been a lot of people who were sort of like, oh, that's that's nice. I hope that works out for you versus being like, wow, that's a different approach to take. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really support the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, but I think for me, first of all, the most basic hurdles were just teaching myself how to do certain things. Because you don't know until you know, right? So I had this formal training. But when I graduated from Cordon Bleu, I had just graduated from culinary school, I I would feel silly saying, I am a chef. I've only actually really gotten comfortable with that label after 10 years in this industry. I'm like, all right, I've written two cookbooks. I have indeed been a private chef. I run a virtual cooking class business. I teach people to cook every single day. I've developed hundreds and hundreds of recipes. Like I I now feel comfortable with that title. Although I'm sure many... Restaurant chefs would disagree and say, unless you cook in a restaurant, you don't get to call yourself yourself a chef. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you know that's one of the things that's just being like, well, you know, we get to define who we are and yes. how we see see yeah. ourselves and yeah. what other people think of us as not really our business or our problem. (laughs) Um, But I think the teaching myself so many skills that aren't necessarily related to being a chef has been one of the hardest parts of my career. So for example, um, teaching myself how to blog literally the back end of blogging. I am the most technologically challenged person ever. These things are really hard for me. So Mm. figuring out how to, you know, create a website and keep the back end running. And at the time, you know, Twitter was the primary social media platform and Facebook. There was no Instagram when I started, but then Instagram came along and even Instagram, you know, it's changed so much over the years. First, we had just photos and then, you know, stories and then teaching ourselves how to do reels. It's a lot to do these little things, but the same thing applies to private chefing. Like I, my private chef situation was very unique. There are so many different types of private chefs, but some people just show up in a very well-stocked kitchen. Others have to travel. like I had to travel with my knives, my pots, pans, everything, because I was cooking for really young guys who didn't cook for themselves and didn't have anything in their kitchens, Um, just figuring that dynamic out, how the interpersonal relationships that you have with clients, um, learning how to use platforms like QuickBooks to do my Mm -hmm. accounting, Um, all of these things that sound really simple, Actually, require a lot of time and research, learning how to do food photography. I took like online courses and downloaded all these, um, you know, tutorials and manuals that I would then read to teach myself how to use my DSLR. And like photography is not a remote passion of mine, but it was something that I had to learn in order to get my blog off the ground. Same thing with Pinterest and SEO and all of these things that I just wasn't familiar with. And I truly am not interested in or passionate about, but I'm aware that I need to be on top of these things in order to grow. Um, So those were really simple hurdles. I think one of the biggest hurdles was really just maintaining motivation, especially after hearing no so much. Because my first book, I did write a book proposal prior to the Dude Diet about a year and a half before it was called food that doesn't suck. And it like mm. truly sucked. I, tr- it truly sucked. I cannot trust that enough. <laughs> and I think it's totally fine to admit that work that you've done has just been very, very bad. Like if that book had a- actually been bought, yeah, I think I would have been, it would have been a really bad book because it was about <laughs> six or eight months after I had graduated from culinary school. I didn't, Not know what I was doing. It took me years to hone my recipe development skills, um, to figure out what people respond to recipe-wise in terms of actual types of recipes. Uh, My writing was just all over the place. I hadn't really found my voice yet. But I wrote this whole book proposal. It got to a point where I actually met with publishers. So I felt like it was going to happen. And then when it fell through, I was absolutely crushed. I Mm. was like, what am I going to do? Do I have to get you know, a real job versus the many odd food jobs that I was doing. I was like, is this a waste of my time? I'm never going to get anywhere. Nobody mm. takes me seriously. And I think these are thoughts that we all have at many yeah. stages in our lives, yeah. but especially when we're starting something new. And it was really scary because again, I didn't have anybody to be like, you know, lots of us write failed book proposals. Now that I have so many friends and colleagues in this industry, they're like, yeah, you know, like my, you know, three of my book proposals got rejected before I got this book deal. Or, you know, we hear no all the time. And it's just becoming desensitized to that and being like, all right, this sucked. Try it out for a bit. Yeah. (laughs) Feel sorry for yourself for a day or a week or whatever, and then get Back up and start again. And after it was actually after that book proposal that I was like, I need something to get some street cred here because I am not qualified. Like why would I expect people to take me seriously at this stage in my career? Mm -hmm. And that that's when I decided to actually buckle down on my blog and start posting consistently, study food photography, um, really work on my writing and recipe development skills. And it was actually the real kick in the pants that I needed to get Mm -hmm serious yeah um, and I really wanted to be on TV like that was my dream I was like I want to be on the food network and wildly I was able to get into some rooms with producers casting agents etc and I was basically basically laughed out of all of them. (laughs) And and I, you know, a lot of these, I I think it was, you know, head of development at the food network. I sat in there and I told them about going to culinary school and I wanted to do a show that was about cooking for millennials. And they're like, Oh, Okay, so you want our audience who are people who have been interested in food for their whole lives, and many of whom have been cooking for more longer than you've been alive, to take advice from you? Like, no. Come <laughs> mm. back in 10 years when you have some actual experience and insight and wisdom to offer, yeah. and that was a tough pill to swallow, yeah. but it was also an amazing reality check because I do think that a lot of us can operate under the illusion, especially these days, that it, you know success happens overnight. And mm. that is just not the case for 99.99% of us. Yeah. And the best advice that I've honestly ever been given, <laughs> my dad said to me yeah, back in this phase when I felt like I was never gonna make it and the world was falling apart. He's like, you do know that it takes 10 years to be an overnight success, right? (laughs) At minimum, (laughs) at minimum. (laughs) And that has honestly, as silly as it sounds, like that is what keeps me going because I do think that especially this day and age with social media and just only seeing one side of the stories, like we all share our, highs, even, mm. yeah, sure. We share the lows as well, but typically even those lows are curated into part of our story. Yeah. So I think a lot of people see these stories and are like, oh, this came easily to her, or she blew up so fast, um, about lots of, you know, like you see all of these people that you follow and you're like, oh wow. Like she just started that company and it blew up. Or she wrote a New York times bestseller, or she has a hundred thousand followers on Instagram, whatever it is. And I guarantee most of those people have been chipping away at that goal or dream or their success for years and years and years, because we have to hone our expertise. And that takes time. The, you can't be an expert on something in a couple months. So let's let's focus on the book part, because yeah. you have
0: so much to share there. And I would love to really walk our audience through, you know, if they have an idea, and they are a budding chef, or they are a baker, we have so many bakers who listen in. And they're like, I would just love to have a cupcake cookbook, you know, or yes. any lollipops, whatever. <laughs> How can someone who is just getting started, or even if they've been cooking for a little while, it's a hobby thing, or they run a lifestyle brand, like what do they have to do to publish their first cookbook? Should they um, self-publish and do the Amazon thing? Do you write a proposal? How do you write a proposal for a cookbook, which is like mostly pictures and recipes to a publishing house? Like, Can you walk us through that journey so that our audience can have some takeaways on what they can do in their life to make this happen? Yes.
1: Okay. So there are a couple different ways to go about this. Um, and there are positives and negatives, as with all things, to each. You can self-publish, which is arguably the more lucrative route for most non-celebrity cookbook authors, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can go the traditional publishing route, where you are published by a publishing house. Um, the, The drawback to traditional publishing, I don't think anybody is actually not anybody, I don't think most people are familiar, I certainly wasn't, with how the publishing industry works. So when you get a traditional book deal, which you can either submit a proposal, which the easiest, my biggest advice here is just Google how to write a cookbook proposal. There's actually tons. Everything you need to know in the world is pretty much on Google. And I think most people <laughs> refuse to spend the time down the rabbit hole that's required. I have spent thousands of hours on oh Google my God. Um, over the years. But there, there are templates for a cookbook proposal. So that that is something that can easily be done. There's typically, um, you know, you're going to talk about who you are. You're going to pitch the actual synopsis of the cookbook idea, uh, ID. I cannot
0: speak.
1: You're going to pitch the actual cookbook idea in yeah. short form. And then you're going to talk about the market research, why your cookbook is different from other cookbooks out there who you think is the audience for your book and who will buy it. And then you will typically need to have an outline with the chapter titles and all of the recipe titles. That doesn't mean the recipes actually have to be done. It -hmm. just means that you need titles for them. They will likely change. But most cookbooks are 100 to 125 recipes. You will also need to include sample recipes. For a first-time author, I would say you probably need 15 at least Mm -hmm. um, sample recipes to include in the proposal. are guidelines for how to submit cookbook proposals on, on the Google. Um, Okay. Like if you research different publishing houses, they will often have submission portals, but you can also submit to agencies because an agent is the one who's going to get you the best book deal. I can't tell you how many people I've, I've heard horror stories of just being completely taken advantage of by publishing houses because they negotiated without an agent. Wow. So I would probably recommend submitting to agencies before submitting to publishers, but you can do either. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you do traditional publishing. You typically, if you have an agent, they will submit your proposal to the different publishing houses. Anybody who's interested will typically bring you in for a meeting where you will hopefully pitch even harder in the room. And then there will be a set time period in which publishing houses can bid on your book. They, can, they will submit like if they want you know, you will get an offer, sometimes multiple offers. If there are multiple offers, then the book will go to auction. And it doesn't mean that it has to go to the highest bidder, but that's just a way to get an, a bigger advance. Now, advances are really confusing. And I it, they're, they're a little bit difficult to explain, but cookbook advances, you will re- typically receive an offer for your book. So let's just use round numbers. This is far, far higher than most first time authors get, but say that the publishing house comes to you and say, and says, we'll give you a hundred thousand dollar advance. That sounds exciting. (laughs) Um, You are going to typically get it in three installments, 33%, you know, 33.3% upon signing the deal. Mm -hmm. The next third upon submission of the manuscript, which is a year later. And then the final third upon actual publication. Now, you're still like, well, that's, you know, 33 grand in your pocket up front. Sure. But sometimes there are multi-talented humans who cook and shoot their own cookbooks. But for the most part, most of us have food photographers. Mm -hmm. Um, As a point of reference, photo shoots can run anywhere from 15 grand to a hundred grand. Wow. Um, I, am happy to share it like because I worked with an amazing photographer, uh, Matt Armendariz, who mm. and uh, food stylist Marion Cooper Cairns, who they're both just like incredible, but they are not cheap. And it. I think my first shoot was like $65,000. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you are you are not spending that adma- advance money. <laughs> you are handing that over to your mm-hmm. photographer. Okay, wait, um, i gonna you really quickly there. The yes. photographer for the
0: proposal,
1: is that when that person's hired? Or
0: no, you no.
1: Yourself for your proposal. Yeah, for for my proposal, I just shot photos myself. Um, this is just for the actual book itself. Um, so you're going to pay a photographer. You are like, it's possible that you may want to pay a PR team. All of these things cost to promote your book. All of these things Mm -hmm. cost money. Plus you need to pay for all of the ingredients for Mm -hmm. your recipe testing, which is for 125 recipes is thousands of dollars. Yes. Um and so I think it's very important to be very clear that going into the book writing process um it is not really lucrative unless you happen to be a celebrity or somebody with a killer idea that gets like a $250,000 advance, you know, or something mm-hmm. like that.
0: Mm-hmm. But typically
1: cookbook authors are not pocketing much of that advance at all. So this is why self-publishing is pretty amazing because you are going to pocket, you know, any, you have to pay up front to make your book come together. But, and I'm about to get to this even more complex part. um, Once you start selling your book, you get to pocket all of that money, right? Mm. Whereas in the traditional publishing world, you get your advance. And then when your book comes out, you need to, Pay back your advance at your royalty rate, which is typically ten percent, before you start making any royalties. So again, with that round hundred thousand dollar number, let's say your book, let's just keep this round, um, costs three or costs thirty dollars, right? So your ten percent is three dollars. Mm-hmm. So you need to sell enough books at three dollars to recoup one hundred thousand dollars. Wow before you start making any royalties. So once you earn out your advance, which happens very rarely,
0: It's not talked
1: about enough. Very few people ever earn out their advance and there is nothing wrong or shameful in that at all. Um, It took me two and a half years to earn out on the Dude diet. And I was so proud when I got that first royalty check. But again, then you start (laughs) making $3 per book sold. So. Yeah, it's it's a very complex process, but it is worth it if it's something I always say, like writing a book is the best and worst experience of my life. But nothing beats the experience of having that physical book in people's kitchens all over the world and knowing that they are making the recipes that you created. So Mm -hmm. I know this sounds I feel like I'm making this sound super doom and gloom, but I do think it's really important to be aware of these financial elements because I was not. And so I learned all of this firsthand and was truly horrified because (laughs) luckily, (laughs) luckily I still had, while I was doing this book, I was still creating consistent content for the blog and had brand partnerships, um, as my, as a, you know, secondary and tertiary revenue streams that were in, you know, I wasn't relying on this book to be my income. And I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to get this book deal and then writing the book is my job. But like, sadly, that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just great to be aware of. And then hopefully I like love my agent who's like, yeah, I mean, hopefully one day you're getting that $250,000 advance and then a $500,000. Like those are the stepping stones. But for your first book, It's a big, fancy business card. That's what Mm it is. (laughs) It's a big fancy business card that takes you two years. So once you get this, once you actually get the deal, you typically have a year to write the manuscript. So that's where you're going to do all of the recipe testing yeah, and write the actual manuscript, which is like, you know, for a cookbook, they vary in terms of how much written word there actually is, mm-hmm. so to speak. But like, you're going to write an introduction, you're going to write, maybe you have a section on setting up your kitchen or the essentials for the cookbook. And then you also have your um head notes for each recipe some cookbooks have chapter introductions as well so for the first my first book there was a lot of front matter i think there's like 60 pages of front matter in the dude diet that's like how to set up your first kitchen what the dude diet actually is different you know tips and tricks and things like that in addition to the introduction to the book and so you write all of that and then you submit it and i think what it was really wild to me especially having you know never done this before mm. i said to my editor i was like so great so i'll send you like chapter by chapter and she was like oh god no please don't do that that is not <laughs> acceptable i look forward to reading your manuscript next year like that was and i was mm. like oh my god how am i gonna just go off on my own and write a book so yeah my tangible Actionable advice is if you whether you are going the traditional route or self-publishing, mm. create a schedule with deadlines for each step of the process. You can choose many different routes. You can do all the recipes up front. You can do the recipe and head note each recipe and head note together. You can do all the I I always like to write introductions last. It's just something I've done my entire life. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to approach it. Set deadlines, put them in your calendar. Treat them as if somebody was going to crack the whip if you did not meet them. That is the only way I've done gotten anything done in my career. It's like people are like, yeah, but when you work for yourself, like it's not a real deadline. i was like, oh, yes, it is. How are you ever going to get (laughs) hundreds of pages turned in on time if you do not take those initial deadlines seriously? Like you have to break it up into manageable chunks because you can't just write a book in like a month if you procrastinate it, Mm -hmm. Um, especially a cookbook because recipes require so much testing. So so yeah. that, that make a plan and stick to it. But typically you have a year to write the book and then there's a year, that second year um, is spent doing editing, the photo shoot, the in, the actual design of the book. So everything from the cover design to the fonts to how the recipes and photos are laid out. And then you usually receive like the final proofs a few months before publication. And that's when you start the marketing and publicity process, pitching, um, determining the marketing strategy, if you're doing a book tour, planning that tour, et cetera. So it really is a two full year process from start mm-hmm. to finish. Wow. Serena, can you talk a little bit about building
0: your team for that? Because you mentioned an editor, you mentioned a literary agent. Are there places and resources that you can share that will help people to, if they decide, I mean, before yes. before we even go there, yes. let me just say, <laughs> you said so much about just the fact that it's like, don't, you know, don't make this the moneymaker. Don't make this yes. that makes you a millionaire. Like, if this is your first book, have something else that you do or sell. Have group programs. Programs Have online workshops, have something yes. that's generating revenue. And and I, I think that will land very well with our audience because we do talk a lot about online courses and consulting and yes. social media and all the things. Um, so I love that you said that because I agree with you. I think everyone thinks this is going to be, I'm going to get my big break writing this book. And though it might be that, it is still a process. There's the first trial that people are taking with you. Then, if you successfully pass that level, then you may go to level two, and you can climb. But overnight successes, unless you're like President Obama, it's just like not going to happen. You know, if you don't have that star <laughs> power. So I love the I love the reality check there. Now, if people have gone through that kind of Kind of um, quality check, and they're like, "Well, okay, I get that. I'm brought back down to reality. Thank you, Serena, for saving my life. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I want to do this. How do I build my team? Do you have resources on finding a literary agent or finding editors? You know, what did you do? Did you just hit Google? Or, I mean, you're in New York, so maybe you just kind of networked and found the right yes, the right people. How does that? It's work? actually it's a
1: little bit the latter. So I had originally. going back to my, I wanted to be on TV element. I had actually gotten a talent agent through networking in, in New York and family. Um, I had gotten this talent agent who again, took a chance on me, um, Mm -hmm. early on. And I was taken on, he was at a big agency, William Morris Endeavor, and they had a literary department. So this was very much luck for me and that i was able to be passed off to a literary agent just in a separate department like that's how they're t- a lot of agents work in teams um mm-hmm. so like you i now have a talent agent and a literary agent um some people have you know a talent agent a literary agent um and like it- there's, there's lesser, I don't want to say lesser. There are smaller, um, there are agents that work in teams, for example, at WME, like there's a lifestyle team. They are not my personal agents, but Mm. they do work in tandem with my agents. Um, But I think, yes, networking is never should be underestimated. Um, Really, exhausting any possibility you might have in your network of getting a meeting with an agent. But otherwise, I think the submission process of a very, like, do not half-ass. If you do not have an agent, you cannot half-ass a proposal. So I would really strongly recommend following the templates online and really digging in and making the proposal the best it can be. The one thing that I want to stress is that I think a lot of people, and I, I, I probably put this notion to bed, a lot of people want to write a cookbook because they're like, it'll be so fun. But yeah, <laughs> I, I think <laughs> if you want to write a p- cookbook, you have to ask yourself, A, why? Because we always have to have a why, to, at the very least, to motivate us to get through the whole process. But also, what is your hook? Because that's what you're going to get asked by your agent and by potential publishers. So, for example... The Dude Diet is essentially healthy, accessible meals. But there are a million cookbooks about healthy, accessible meals. So you can't pitch it as healthy, accessible meals. Like I was pitching it as I was like, well, this is a cookbook for – men, which there aren't a lot of cookbooks for men out there. This is also a cookbook for families. This is a cookbook for comfort food lovers. This is a cookbook for people who have a sense of humor. This is a cookbook for people who are intimidated by gourmet cooking. This is a cookbook for people who don't like cookbooks. (laughs) It's a Mm. storybook. And I think that all of those things were what help me differentiate the do diet from what already existed. So you can't just write a baking cookbook or a healthy eating cookbook or a weeknight dinners cookbook. If you're, if you are somebody like, you know, if you are a celebrity chef or something and you're like, I want to do. Uh, my my greatest hits, they'll be like, yeah, sure. But that's because you already have a platform and an audience built in. If you are a first-time author, you need a hook. So really think long and hard about that. Then you can write your proposal and submit it. Um, the team that you mentioned, if you are going with a traditional publisher, that will be provided for you in the sense that you will be signing with an editor. So, mm-hmm. and most of the, publishing houses, everything is done in-house. So they have an in-house design team, an in-house PR team. I also hire outside PR because what most authors that I know learned the hard way, including myself, is that, (laughs) you you know, you are first-time authors are typically our, our, small fish in a very large pond. And that in-house PR team is likely going to try to get, you know, Chrissy Teigen, the today show before they're pitching Serena Wolf for the today. Mm. Show. Um, so I hired outside PR where I knew that I would be their priority versus, right. Right. you know, hoping that I would get some bites from in-house PR, but, but a publishing house is going to have, a marketing team, a design team, a PR team, and then your editor and their assistant. Um, so you are going to have that built in. If you're self-publishing, you are absolutely going to need an editor and you can hire a freelance editor. I would go on LinkedIn. Um, I would exhaust your network. But like there are plenty of editors in the world. You absolutely need one, one thousand percent. And then if you are not somebody who's really design savvy, hiring a designer to help you lay out your book I think is also somebody that you need on your team Um, I also for my first book I did. I organized my entire book tour myself uh, three months after the book came out because I kept being like, so when do you think they're going to mention my book tour? And then I was like, so do I go on a book tour? And they were like, (laughs) no. (laughs) And I was like, oh, well, I would like to go on a book tour. So I literally cold emailed hundreds of venues. And I do think that I don't like the way our society glamorizes the hustle. In general, I think that we deserve and need rest in order to be creative. But I also think that you got to do the work if you want something, you have to do the work. And so I literally researched, I ended up going on, I think it was like 18 cities or something. And in each city, I found multiple possible venues and I cold emailed all of these places. I pitched myself. I sent them free copies of my book. 98% of them either said no or did not respond. But in each of those cities, somebody did in fact respond. It was like, cool. Yeah, we'll do a book event with you. And mm. then I planned and executed those events. It was terrifying <laughs> and <laughs> was an actual logistical nightmare. Um, but for my second book, I, at that point, had hired an assistant to help me with the day-to-day, you know, admin of my business, and she helped me plan. She did the outreach in different cities, um, and then for the second book tour, because I realized that the first one was such a financial disaster, um, because I ended up, you know, being in Airbnbs or hotels in 18 different cities, and that cost money, and that was not financially practical. Um, so for the second tour, I actually did partnerships with each hotel that I stayed in. So I traded them social media coverage, um, for a free stay. And my audience was all over it because I was like, look, you guys, I can't, this is how the finances of a book tour work. I am my if you are of a certain level, perhaps your publisher pays for it, but mine is not. Yeah. So self-funding this is not realistic. Um, I'm going to do hotel tours of everywhere I stay in exchange for a room so that I can come meet you all. And people ended up a being like, yes, I I respect the fact that you're being open about this and also like great, but also people love the hotel tour. So it was a (laughs) <laughs> um, but I think that team and also like, if you can get an assistant or an intern to help you stay on top of planning and deadlines, or even just if you want somebody to help you test recipes or bounce ideas off of is really invaluable. Um, it's one thing that I've, I've really embraced, especially in the past four years is like, I cannot. Come up with like I'm, I can come up with ideas, but sometimes you need to hear whether or not those ideas are sound from yeah. an outside source. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So that's been really helpful to me.
0: You know, uh, with the team thing, kind of closing that part out, one thing that I didn't hear you mention was the legal part of it. Um, oh, it yes. Intellectual property. Like, did you have to get your recipes all trademarked? Are you worried about if people take them? Like, what is that process like for cookbook authors?
1: So for the actual, I can't speak to how this would work for self-publishing. W- in a publishing house, when it comes to the contract negotiation for the book that was handled internally by my agency. So if you are not represented by an agent, you 1000% need a lawyer independently. Um, when it term- comes to the recipes, the entire book itself is copyrighted. Um, so yes, nobody can reproduce or you know steal the recipes without, you know, violating copyright law. But no, you do not trademark individual recipes. Um, I did trademark the Dude Diet many, many years ago, just because that felt like a standalone brand to me that I didn't want to have any interference with. Mm -hmm. Um, But when it comes to your book itself, if you're self-publishing, you would definitely need to, you know, copyright your book.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Really helpful. Wow. So much information. If you could leave us with one major tip on how to publish your first cookbook, kind of summarizing everything you said, or maybe it's something that you didn't mention that you think is really important. What is the takeaway that you have for our audience on that area?
1: I think, first of all, do not give up early on. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. a long process. So that's that's the overarching thing. Is it's a long process. Take care of yourself so you can keep your head in the game throughout each step of that process. Whether that's finding an agent, shopping it to publishers, getting through that first year, which is really tough, um, maintaining excitement and motivation during that second year where you're a little bit less hands on, and then really giving it your all when you're promoting it. I think it is just to invoke a cliche, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm. You have to take care of yourself. You have to do whatever it takes to consistently fill yourself up so that you can remind yourself why you are excited about this. I think that when you are excited about something that comes through in the work. So if you're not feeling excited about it for a bit, no, we don't have the luxury of like, you know, being like, I'm gonna spend a few months doing something else, but like, give yourself breaks, step away from it. Um, I always, there was some wonderful, I need to print it out at some point, but there's this sort of sketch that has been all over the internet for years about the creative process. And it's just like, uh, you know, jagged line. That's like, this is, awesome this is terrible this is awesome this is terrible (laughs) riding those waves and sticking with it is truly the key to success and as I mentioned earlier a huge part of my story and the stories of all of the people that really inspire me and that I really look up to involve a ton of perseverance and patience patience Mm -hmm. is key
0: Patience is key. I love that. I mean, Serena, you are such a ball of fire. You are a, you know, I can see why you have gotten the success that you have from the Ivy League success to the um, travel success, living in Paris, studying at Le Cordon Bleu, being a cookbook, being a blogger, recipe developer. I mean, you have done it all. If you could look back and give your 10-year younger self any piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Um, I think, well, since I already said it takes 10 years to become an overnight success, that is actually too (laughs) fitting for my 10-year younger self, um, I would probably say that this is, again, from my dad, he always has the good one-liners, but success teaches you nothing. All the teachable moments are in failure. And I fail consistently and sometimes fantastically, but that reframe of not of being sort of interested in what I can take from each failure, and that doesn't mean that there isn't the tears and the frustration and whatever, but that mental reframe of being like, all right, this thing didn't work or didn't pan out as you hoped there is definitely a lesson in here and what is it and how can you channel that into whatever your next success might be because there is always another success coming down the pipe if you are willing to maintain flexibility and actually learn from the failures.
0: Failure is our greatest teacher. I it is. love that. How can we support you, Serena? Where can our audience find you? I know they're gonna be flocking to like buy anything you have. <laughs> we dished all the goods on this episode. <laughs> find
1: and support you. Thank you so much. First of all, this was such a lovely conversation. So thank you for having me and for the support. Um, But you can find me at Serena G. Wolf on all things social media. My website is domesticate-me.com. My cookbooks are The Dude Diet and The Dude Diet Dinner Time, which you can find wherever books are sold. And I would obviously be honored to have a place on your bookshelf. Um, And my podcast, Spiraling, is available wherever you get your podcasts. Serena Wolf, everybody. Thanks so
0: much for coming on the show and I can't wait to have you back. Thank you. You are listening to Lifestyle and Success with Dr. S, a talk show to help you rise in business success while designing a life that you don't need a vacation from. To subscribe to the show and never miss a beat, head to Lifestyle and Success with DRS.com. I'm not the only